Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider. I'm Dominic Fercasa, a City Hall reporter for The Chronicle. There's a new sheriff in town in San Francisco. Paul Miyamoto was sworn in as San Francisco's sheriff earlier this year after spending more than 20 years with the department. He became the first Asian-American sheriff in California's history when that happened. He took office at a pivotal moment for criminal justice reform in San Francisco and across the country, one in which his department will play an important role. As the city works to lower incarceration rates, it's the sheriff's department who will oversee a vastly expanded pretrial release program. He and his deputies are also on the front lines of the changing ways in which the city is approaching incarcerated people with severe behavioral health issues. Miyamoto joins us now to talk about the future of the city's crumbling hall of justice, his vow to protect the city's sanctuary city immigration policies, and why exactly no one else seems to have wanted his job. He was, after all, elected last November without a challenger. Sheriff Paul Miyamoto, thank you so much for joining us this oh, morning. Thank you for having me. I want to just start quickly by uh, going through your biography, Sheriff. Um, you said a moment ago, this is your 24th year with the department. And as I understand it, you've held basically every rank uh, uh, sort of up to and including now Sheriff. I have, actually. I started as a deputy back in 1996 and uh, have moved forward ever since. Yeah. Does that give a sort of certain perspective on the department as a whole, kind of seeing it from all of those angles, you know, up to and including, again, like the highest perch in the department? I think it gives me a unique perspective on having the experience at all different levels of our department, all the different divisions. Uh, We're very diverse in terms of what we do and how we do things. A lot of times people's perceptions of the sheriff's office is that we work in the courts, we work in the jails, and that's about it. But there's so much more to our department and to the work that our staff do. And the ability to have actually done that work uh, leads to an advantage to me as the sheriff now in knowing what's going on and knowing the inner workings of the department in knowing where we can experience some efficiencies moving forward and also where we can help people on a day-to-day basis. What are some of those parts that people don't see exactly? Uh, I know like, pretrial diversion is something that I know has taken up, you know, it takes up a lot of, um, you know, time and resources. And then that's something that I don't think people immediately associate with the department, for example. But what are some other parts that, that people don't normally associate with it that they should be aware of? I think I'm, I'm glad you brought up pretrial diversion. Uh, that pro- pretrial diversion project uh, and the work that they do that we've collaborated with them on since day one. It was very important to the criminal justice process. We actually just last night, this is very fresh information, we started on our implementation of our procedures to comply with the Buffin decision. Oh, t- tell, us, is, tell folks what that is a little bit. Yeah, please. That is actually uh, the ability for us to process people out uh, pre-arraignment within 18 hours of their arrest. So there's an accelerated process that we have now implemented uh, as of midnight today. And that process involves pretrial diversion project. What we do is we provide the judicial officer information so that a decision can be rendered in an expedited manner so that the person who has been arrested uh, won't be uh, detained before arraignment and have the ability 
uh, to be released prior to arraignment hmm. uh, if they meet the criteria from our public safety assessment. Yeah, I know that um, that that responsibility around changes to pretrial diversion in San Francisco and California has has collided in a sense uh, with what's you and I have talked before about a, a long term staffing issue within the, the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. Law enforcement agencies across the country are are reporting experiencing difficulties in recruiting right now. I, I sort of um, uh, even this morning getting off the uh, the Muni train. There's an ad for Oakland Police Department in the San Francisco Muni Station, for example. You know what I mean? It just and that oh, just yes. that kind of struck me on my way in for this interview. So I, I wonder if you could talk about sort of the, where that staffing shortage came from ex- it, it, uh, uh, exactly and. And how you're addressing it now or how you plan to address it as the new sheriff. Oh, absolutely. Well, one, I hope to have San Francisco Sheriff's Office recruitment ads on the muni buses. <laughs> I'll so look that, for them. Uh, we'll look for them. Yes. We are all competing for the same pool of talent and applicants. Uh, but we work together in trying to get people interested in a career in this profession. Public safety is a calling. And it's something that we want to have quality people involved in. So, our interest is the same as any other public safety agency in getting those quality people. So our recruitment efforts will match and hopefully surpass uh, so that you'll see San Francisco on there instead of <laughs> Oakland. Uh, going back to what we were saying, just to close on the buff, and I think it's a perfect example of where people aren't really aware that decisions made uh, in terms of criminal justice reform and things that we do to make things better for others have impacts on the people that are involved in the process. And not just the sheriff's office, but our partners like pretrial diversion, when a decision is made where we accelerate the process to provide for equity in the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. that incurs time, energy, resources, that incurs additional staffing uh, to provide and uh, complete the task. So that's where some of the challenges we face are, where we have to comply with either court orders or we implement strategies and plans for criminal justice reform that involve the need for increased resources. And so it's not just the job we're doing right now, but it's also the adjustments that we make to make the job better. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because it sounds to me in a way that the sheriff's department in in a way that's not always very visible, as we said a moment ago, is yes. kind of on the uh, the cutting edge of what of everything that's happening right now around bail reform, whether that's you know, discussions around ending cash bail, whether that's things like expanding pretrial diversion, like the sheriff's department is is sort of where is the governmental sort of rubber hitting the road in a sense with a lot of this. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Again, that's just something that I don't think people see a lot. And yet it it sounds like it's becoming an increasingly important part of of a of a of a sheriff's job and and, and his or her deputies as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that uh, in addition to that, what we're talking about just procedurally, you also have the added responsibility for our office to monitor individuals who are out uh, prior to arraignment or who are out as an alternative to incarceration. Yeah. Uh, We have different types of monitoring, uh, whether it's the ankle monitors, electronic monitoring, whether it's uh, non-supervision, where they're just checking in. Uh, There's a sort of case management where we help to coordinate with either pretrial diversion or the adult probation department in making sure that we keep track of individuals who are criminal justice involved but are out of custody and not in jail but in the community. We want to make sure that people are held accountable, given that opportunity, while at the same time balancing the fairness. Uh, We don't want to just immediately go out and rearrest people for not meeting the conditions of their uh, release. But at the same time, the second, the third, the fourth chances, at some point, we partner with the courts in making sure that people, when they can't comply, uh, are held accountable.
I believe it was in your uh, in the speech after you were sworn in when you mentioned another challenge for the department being the sort of rising level of um, incarcerated individuals with se- sometimes severe behavioral health problems in the jail. I mean, the sort of the sort of going um, phrase, if you will, is that you know jail is is not the place for people to receive mental health treatment and, and get better from a mental or behavioral health standpoint. So, what when when coming into this job, what what do you think your approach is going to be for handling that that sort of troubling trend uh, in San Francisco's jails right now? Well, following your theme of people not realizing what our department does <laughs> and you know, it's a very jail is a very negative environment when you're involved in a place where people really don't want to know what happens, but they want to make sure that we do things in a way that's humane and that supports people. I want to say that the work that our staff do in partnership with the Department of Public Health, with the healthcare people, with the behavioral health clinicians, we do an outstanding job at managing individuals with behavioral health and mental health issues. And I want to say also that as we try our push in justice reforms to keep people out of jail, the people that remain are the most severely uh, uh, affected people, not just by mental and behavioral health, but also people that have behaviors Mm -hmm. that are a threat to public safety. So in dealing with that population, as it becomes more acute in terms of their needs, Uh, We deal with people in crisis on a daily basis, and the work that's done by our staff in partnership with our public health staff, I think, is an outstanding example of people working in very negative conditions that come out with positive outcomes. Uh, We have, we started a pilot program a few years ago out at County Geo 5 at San Bruno, and we have behavioral health assistance teams where we have deputies who are specially trained in crisis intervention techniques who receive additional training in partnership with uh, healthcare clinicians. And they're actually teams that react to things and are proactive in talking with and implementing behavioral health plans for individuals so that we're at the scene before a crisis uh, situation. Mm. And in doing so, we've reduced the need to place people in what we call safety cells, uh, places where they're uh, brought to basically a timeout yeah. From their behaviors mm-hmm. so that they don't harm themselves or others. Uh, we've reduced the safety cell placements that we've had as a result of this partnership. Uh, that's something that I'm hoping to implement the department-wide in terms of the custody operations division so, so and that, make sure that we have them at all our other locations as well. D- does that suggest that the pilot in San Bruno, though, has gone, has gone well, has seen successes? Like when you talk about implementing it, you know, citywide, so to speak, is that does that reflect a, a good outcome in San Bruno to that project? I think that the best outcomes have been partnerships where yeah. we collaborate and we bring together uh, different agencies with all their expertise to coordinate and provide for resources and assistance. You know, you see that in HSOC, you see that in different areas. But for us specifically in for our in-custody population, for people that are justice involved and incarcerated, we have a need there that we've met with that partnership. And uh, to go back to what your original question was about that, I think that uh, we actually are able to take a situation where we have people in jail and provide for them services which are commensurate with the services that they would receive outside in the community. And I want to say that these services aren't just mental health or behavioral health services. Uh, Medical care is provided for free of cost in the jails as well. But we're also looking at the services that we provide to help people change their perspective on things and maybe change their behaviors. I think when you look at the overall 
offerings of services that we have in our system in regards to education, in regards to specialized needs. So we have recovery services as relates to drug addictions or even involvement in drug cases, uh, sales, uh, you know, distribution. Uh, it goes beyond just people who have addictions and substance abuse addictions. Mm-hmm. We have tailored programs for veterans. Our cover pod is one that we implemented, which I'm also very proud of because that in tailoring that to the spe- to very specialized needs for people and bringing together a community with shared experiences, uh, there's more of a ability to have people respond positively to the services that we provide because there's that shared experience. Uh, our veterans pod, you know, obviously we now have collaborative courts, which are designed the exact same way mm-hmm. as our housing units in the jails when you have drug court, when you have behavioral health court, when you have veterans court. So overall, we're a part of a system that's trying to tailor and provide services within the system, which I think are extremely effective because you have, um, for lack of a better term, a captive audience who are not distracted by outside uh, temptations and people have a commitment inside while they're in custody, which they may not have when they're outside in the community. Mm. When you mentioned jail being a negative environment, that's, you know, that, that seems very fair and maybe an understatement, but (laughs) at 850 Bryant uh, in San Francisco, the hall of justice, I mean, that's, that's a, 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 I'll editorialize a bit and say it's a pretty lousy building and and it's that's not a secret right in San Francisco the the building has a lot of structural issues there are concerns about seismic safety and as as the city kind of works to you know move staff uh, out of the building you know, district attorney staff and people like that over time and there are concerns about the conditions of the jail and and the conditions of the inmates in that jail and and their safety i mean o- overall what we're talking about is a conversation of what to do with 850 bryant what to do with the hall of justice um this conversation is sort of like waxed and waned for years in san francisco um i know that your predecessor uh, uh sheriff vicky hennessy um, was um, you know supportive of trying to to build a new jail so that they there can be safety and there can be better living conditions for people who you know are inmates and people who are working in the jail as as professionals of the city and attorneys and all of that. I guess what I want to ask is you know as the, the sheriff's department will be a, a one part of the conversation right in the decision of what eventually to do with 850 Bryant and everybody there. I just wonder what your input will be in that conversation. I mean the mayor has now set a, a sort of a line for when, you know, they, she wants to decommission the building. That's, you know, uh, uh, an ambitious one, as I recall, though the date, exact date escapes me at the moment. But w- uh, how would you... 2021. Okay. July 2021. That's even more ambitious than I remembered. So very good. I appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt it's you would know. embedded in my mind. Yeah, though. no doubt you would know off the top there. I don't... Uh, that doesn't surprise me. So I guess what, again, what is your, your sort of input going to be in that conversation, do you think, about the future of the jail? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is one of our number one priorities. And I I just want to answer and respond in terms of placing it in a framework where I reference both what's happened in the past and what we hope to accomplish uh, to achieve the goal of getting everyone out of there. One, I would take it one step further than what you said. And I, I believe it's a very inhumane environment for everyone, not just justice involved people that are incarcerated, but also our staff and the people that work in the building. We have many challenges over the years, uh, which we've tried to address. And it's very hard to get a commitment and an investment in terms of trying to shore up the infrastructure 
when everybody knows that we're leaving the building. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is there in terms of how do you balance that in terms of making sure that we're responsible as stewards of, of public funds to invest in something that we're moving on from and that everybody is already moving out of. Uh, we've gone from being the number one priority. We go back as far as the mid-2000s when in our capital plans and in partnership with the entire city, we were prioritizing the renovation. First, actually, as you mentioned, uh, we originally advocated for building a new facility right. uh, to meet the needs of the justice system for not just the incarcerated, but all the other components that we've talked about briefly. That moved on, uh, and we actually secured some grant funding from the state to match what the, what the funding would be from the city. So we had all of that in place. But unfortunately, sometimes people that are very passionate about justice reforms uh, saw the building of a new jail as something that was not in line with the values of the city. So we met with some challenges where we had to inform the public as to the need on something that the public really didn't want to have. Right. And as a result, the plans to, do, to build the new building were uh, not followed through on. Uh, there was a re-envisioning project where the plan was to completely reduce the population to the point where we wouldn't need a new facility at all. With services and investments in housing. Exactly, and all, yeah. exactly. And uh, we've gone through now over four years uh, since that time. Uh, we have made a concerted effort as an agency to lower our population in partnership with some of those reforms that I mentioned earlier and in some of the other things that we do in trying to increase people that are monitored by us in the community. Uh, but we haven't been able to reach the point where we can completely close down the jail. From day one, after swearing in, uh, I've worked with our team in trying to formulate a plan on lowering our population even further at County Jail 4. That's the seventh floor of the Hall of Justice, mm -hmm. the place we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Working very hard in trying to reduce that population so that we can push the numbers into our current infrastructure, which is extremely challenging to do. However, there's a need and a commitment from us to get as many people out of there as possible. Uh, the mayor's uh, timeline is very challenging. Uh, there is a need, and it's, it's reflective of the need. So I appreciate that she's taken a stance where she understands that we have to be out of there. The challenge is getting us out of there. Right. Uh, part of that contemplates what I hope to achieve, which is to renovate our existing facilities. We have two other facilities, County Jail 2, which is located at 425 7th Street, mm -hmm. and our San Bruno facility, which I referenced earlier when right. we talked about behavioral health. That's at San Bruno, County Jail 5. Um, there is a location out there where we have a facility that is not in use right now that we'd like to renovate to be able to provide for moving everyone out of the hall and moving them into a more livable space. Uh, more humane space, mm -hmm. one that's conducive to delivery of services. Uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention is that the jail we're talking about is what we call a linear facility. So it's what people see in the movies, what people see long in media, blocks of long yeah. blocks of cells yeah. and uh, gates mm -hmm. and bars. Uh, we have a more humane system now in our newer facilities. And when I say newer, the facilities that we've built in the 90s. Relatively. Yeah. Relatively yeah. new, yes. I'm getting older now. So <laughs> to me, it's still new. For sure. Uh, but those podular settings, they're more of a communal living environment, which is more conducive to us being able to bring people out to hmm. interact with one another and to provide services. Those are the 
optimal areas and living spaces that we want to have. Um, the renovations for CJ2 and CJ5 are the path that I'd like to follow to get people into our system and be able to have them in those livable environments. But it, the challenge is, yeah. again, trying to convince everyone that we need money to be invested into our jail infrastructure. And the challenge for me is to be able to convey that message uh, in light of the value system that we have where some people don't want any jails at all, right. which I believe uh, there is still a need in terms of public safety to be able to provide a space for people who can't interact with the community in a safe manner uh, and be provided services to change those behaviors. We'll be back after a short break to talk more with San Francisco Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. You're listening to San Francisco City Insider. Let's get back to our discussion with Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. We were talking about the potential of using jail facilities in other counties. Just very quickly, one thing that I wanted to touch on and just have you address is when we talk about if the San Bruno facility sort of uh, concept that you have were to move forward, and I know there's a lot of hurdles before that becomes a reality or even before you can start, right? But let's say that that were to happen. I mean, doesn't that present certain challenges of its own in terms of having to, uh, you know, uh, bus people or bring people to San Francisco to court dates from San Bruno? I'm not saying it's a terribly long ways away, but when you also talk about visitation, when you talk about just... uh, removing people from the nucleus of San Francisco. I mean, does, does that present challenges in your mind? Are, are those, I'm sure they're surmountable, but that's just one thing that I've thought about in, in, in hearing about the San Bruno, um, is it the CJ five plan? That's put, correct. Yeah, in, in, in sort of hearing that about that plan, can you talk about some of the logistical hurdles that you'll have to overcome to make that, uh, to make that run smoothly? Oh, absolutely. We already have those hurdles right now that mm-hmm. we overcome with the infrastructure we have in place. We constantly transport individuals to and from our San Bruno facility. We have county land out there. We have a large area where we can uh, facilitate that movement. However, the challenge is really uh, the location in terms of the ability for the community to support their loved ones and their friends and family that are incarcerated. Because that's crucial, uh, right, to the rehabilitation. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a part yeah. of our process, yeah. which sometimes don't see, uh, people don't see the forest from the trees. Mm. And in advocacy for you know, putting people out of sight, out of mind, or, or not having things in the city. Uh, that presents challenges for all of us involved in the system that want to provide those services and get people to rehabilitate and reform their behaviors. Uh, the transportation part is not a challenge for us because we already do it every day. The increase uh, as we push part of the population out there will be a challenge for us only because it will increase the need for more resources to go to transportation, mm-hmm. which we'll be able to accomplish. Uh The challenge, though, is really that even if we were to move as many people as we could out into our current infrastructure at San Bruno, we still don't have enough space in our current infrastructure to remove everyone from the seventh floor. Right. So you're still looking at 100 to 150 more individuals who we would have to find housing for who don't currently meet any criteria to release to the community under any sort of supervision. And that's part of our challenge. Sure. Uh, One of the options which I don't want to contemplate but which may become a reality is contracting out with another county to provide for housing space. Like San Mateo Uh, County or the farther away. Really the only option that we have right now in terms of our region here is Alameda County. I see. And so we've we've had plans in the past and and back in the 90s we actually did have people who were housed in Alameda County and we had to engage and transport back and forth. 
the challenges there, though, are that there will be a decrease in the level of services those individuals receive. Uh, there will be the added costs of longer transportation routes and times. Sure. Uh, also, the fact, you know, we're not just talking about community members uh, who interact and visit individuals, but we're also talking about uh, people that are in the criminal justice system. So their defense attorneys, right. uh, the lawyers and the people involved in the process itself, probation, uh, all of the different agencies that support people while they're justice involved, that would be a challenge for them also to interact with those individuals. Yeah. And for my part as the sheriff, if we were to have to move people and increase the number of people out at San Bruno, uh, we're actually looking at other things to facilitate uh, their their interaction with their family and loved ones. Our visiting hours right now are on the weekends and holidays, and we were actually looking at having to expand uh, the options that people have hmm. to come out and visit, uh, which would, of course, increase our resource need. So it's all just – it's. Um... A lot of a lot of interrelated factors that that you're going to have to weigh. I, I, I want to change gears a little bit. Um, last sure. year, um, Sheriff uh, Hennessy, former Sheriff Hennessy, um, made the decision to um, sort of outsource internal investigations um, within the sheriff's department. Um, Deputy misconduct cases, I believe, specifically to an outside agency called the Department of Police Accountability, I believe, which is kind of a, I believe it's a citizen-led group that investigates, you know, police misconduct or allegations of police misconduct. Were you supportive of that decision? You would have been assistant sheriff at that time. You would have been high up in the department when when that decision was made. I'm just curious how that how that looked from your vantage point, and if that's something that um, that you supported at the time and still support. Well, at the time that that decision was made by Sheriff Hennessy. I was the chief of field operations. Okay. So the impetus for that partnership stemmed from allegations that were raised in our custody operations division, in our jails. Right. I believe that the partnership is important in regards to some of the expectations of the community and the public now in regards to transparency and trust and accountability. I believe the partnership is a pathway to making sure people understand that it's not just us as an agency investigating ourselves. That partnership provides for some of that transparency in the process. Uh, the different cases that were raised from there obviously will lead to either sustained or not sustained complaints on the allegations. Those that are sustained will be processed administratively by my administration as we've inherited uh, this process. And people will be held accountable for their behaviors if it rises to the level of misconduct. Uh, one thing about my background, as you mentioned, and in my perspective, I support this in regards to the overall process because of that need for transparency and also the fact that as part of my personal experience in uh, working for the sheriff's office, I spent some time in the internal affairs unit and our criminal uh, internal affairs investigations unit and being involved in both criminal and administrative investigations. It gives me a perspective where I'm thoroughly uh, aware of the different processes involved mm -hmm. and the needs for finding out uh, through the process uh, what the facts are for any allegations. So I'm very sensitive to the process itself. I believe that this is nothing but a way for us to get more information and get more thorough in our gathering of that information. So I do support that. At the same time, uh, as we move forward, and in talking with Paul Henderson, who's the director of DPA right now. Police Accountability. Uh, yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, sorry. Sometimes no, I use acronyms. Right. Uh, You're not the only one in government who does <laughs> it. No worries. But yes, the, the Department of Police Accountability. 
some of the challenges there are that, you know, they were designed for the investigation of police allegations or complaints from the police. And the original name was actually the Office of Citizen Complaints. Mm. So that's where they've grown. And uh, I believe that this growth is something that we, uh, as we collaborate with them, uh, that's needed for us uh, to provide for that accountability. And I believe that their investigative process has matched with ours. <clears throat> and our internal affairs unit actually does partner and collaborate with them on the investigations. So their ability to have that knowledge that I have uh, because of my experience in the department and that our investigators have, that partnership helps lead to better results on the investigation. So, Sheriff, one uh, one matter of increasing importance to a lot of San Franciscans right now is understanding how local law enforcement agencies like the sheriff's department, who is running the jails, who is overseeing the jail operations in the city, how they will deal with federal immigration officials. San Francisco is a sanctuary city. Um, you know, our mayor uh, has made, you know, very clear that local law enforcement will not interact with federal law or federal immigration officials when it comes to these sort of law enforcement matters. So could you just sort of in a compact way articulate the sheriff department's um, policy when it comes to working with federal immigration officials and uh, help people understand what the what the policy is exactly? Absolutely. We comply with all local and state legislation in regards to sanctuary city status. Our involvement uh, is such that you know, immigration is a federal matter. Public safety is a local law enforcement matter. And we, as well as the police department here, uh, do not engage in any civil, civil immigration enforcement. Uh, if we receive detainer requests from ICE, we don't honor any civil immigration enforcement detainers. Uh, we only look to situations where there's a criminal matter involved. And we have a process as articulated by the ordinances in regards to serious or violent felonies in their past convictions, which would bring up to the level of scrutiny for somebody who may be turned over to ICE. Uh, we haven't as of yet with over, I want to say, there's been a number of requests over the years in the thousands, and we haven't complied with any of those requests From ICE. as a part yeah. of that yeah. process. I want to reassure the public that we don't engage in any civil immigration enforcement, that if they suspect that there is ICE activity, the San Francisco Rapid Response Network can be contacted. And that number, if I could share it, is 415-200-1548. There's also a website with information on how to seek help, and that's immigrants.sfgov.org, where people can go to get information and find out more about this process. One last question for you, Sheriff. I um, You had a contested election briefly, uh, I believe, with uh, Ron Terry, who ran against you for a couple of months but had to back out in August yes. uh, of the of the race for sheriff. The, the election just just happened <laughs> this past November. It's it's uh, feels like longer than that. But <laughs> I, I wonder I, I wonder maybe the answer is like all of these questions I just asked you about the sheriff's department and kind of what's going on there and the and the challenges that that you're going to have to confront. But why why do you think no one else wanted to run for this job? You you ran and un ultimately ran un uncontested. I just wonder why do you think no one else sort of like stepped up? I mean, is it just the the inherent difficulties and the 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 day-to-day -day stuff the, the the grind of it that people are not i don't know that they don't want to deal with the sheriff like why do you think nobody else stepped up wow <laughs> didn't expect that question dom 
but actually, you know, I think it speaks to a lot of different things. So you've already articulated some of those. This, the, there's a complete challenge to the job. Uh, there is a, as I mentioned earlier, it's hard for it's hard enough for us to try to recruit people into public safety because there are many, uh, many, many negative uh, portrayals of how we do our job. I want to just say that one of the things that motivated me to run for sheriff, not just this election, but I did run in a previous uh, campaign back in 2010 for the 2011 election. And uh, the motivation I have is the people that I work with because I know they do good work. And I referenced earlier that, you know, we work in a place where people don't really want to know what's going on until something bad happens. And then they want to shed light on any inadequacies that we have. But what's not shared with the public or with the community on a daily basis is the good work that we do every day. And the men and women of the department, our professional staff, our sworn staff, are all committed to ensuring a safe and secure system, uh, are committed to providing services for those in need that are involved in the system. So somebody is not just sitting in a housing unit, not doing anything, waiting for their next court date. We want to provide opportunities for people to change and to succeed. And so we try to do that in the system that we have in place. The challenge that you mentioned, which would lead people to not want to run for office, <laughs> is that it's not a popular, one, it's not a popular profession. Two, it is extremely challenging because sometimes in advocacy for reform, in advocacy for change, the opposite voice for safety and making sure that we do it in a way that doesn't affect the community negatively in terms of not holding people accountable for their actions uh, is not a popular position to take. I think that I'm well positioned to be able to provide that voice because of my experience in the system, because of the legit legitimacy, I guess you would say, of the fact that I've been involved in this for my entire public career. And that I have a commitment to it that's demonstrated by that involvement. Uh, I look forward to working with everybody collaboratively in the city also. Uh, I was born and raised here. Uh, so my decision to work not just in public safety but here for San Francisco is an investment that I have personally. Uh, I have four kids that I, I'm raising here right now. And uh, actually just raising the four kids probably prepared me for managing <laughs> uh, a thousand. Oh, did I say four? I <laughs> actually I actually misspoke. I have five kids. <laughs> That's funny. That's the That's first fine. time I've done that. That's all right. That's all but right. But managing five kids is the equivalent of managing a thousand professional staff <laughs> in San Francisco, the way I look at it. I, sometimes I miscount because I have triplets. So, I see. So sometimes okay. I just okay. get that completely confused. That's so all right. I apologize. I'm going to hear it from my wife, by the way. <laughs> Who? Uh, my other personal investment, I actually met my wife in jail. That's one of the stories I like <laughs> telling people my first day on the job. Uh, I was late in reporting. I'm literally my first day yeah. in a housing unit as a deputy. I was late in reporting for work uh, to my assignment. And uh, the person that I was replacing was very upset with me uh, and shared that uh, in no uncertain terms. <laughs> I see. But she ended up being my wife. <laughs> and so I've made it up to her in terms of uh, my tardiness that first day. I guess getting uh, elective sheriff, that's that's a pretty good way to make it up to yeah. her. So I have that investment. I have that uh belief in our system. And I have that commitment to the community to keep going, to keep working, to be that voice 
for public safety and for advocacy to do things in a humane way, but also a practical way where we don't respond emotionally to wanting things to happen, which may impact the community in a negative way. Yeah. Sheriff Paul Miyamoto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Our thanks to Sheriff Paul Miyamoto for joining us, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. We'll see you next time. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.